Hello! Well, slay the fatted calf, for the professor who is lost is found again. Hey everybody, and sorry I've been away for so long. The last two months have been quite something. First, the month of August was consumed by the festival in the Shire, then recovering from the travel to and from the festival in the Shire, not to mention the lovely virus I caught at the festival in the Shire, then frantic preparation for the start of the semester. Then September, of course, was consumed by actually teaching those classes and getting my other college responsibilities under control. I'm teaching a new course at Washington College this term, and one that makes me think about Tolkien a lot, an introduction to Anglo-Saxon language and literature. This has been a tremendously fun course to teach, but it is taking a simply enormous amount of my time. Now, in addition to wondering where I've been for the last couple months, many of you have also been asking about whatever happened to those next lectures in the Hobbit series that I said I'd be completing over the summer. Well, I must sadly admit that my grand plans for this past summer have come to comparatively little, as I ended up spending most of my time with my two young sons. Now, I can't truly regret or apologize for that, of course, though it did derail my intended work on the lecture series. I shall certainly return to them as soon as I can, though I have to admit that it will likely not be until December, considering the demands of my classes this semester, as I mentioned earlier. However, I do have some good news and some fun announcements. First, there are two upcoming events at Washington College that I wanted to tell you about and issue a general invitation to. The first is an event that I am enormously excited about. On Thursday, November 4th, at 7.30 p.m., the legendary Benjamin Bagby will deliver his live, authentic performance of the epic poem Beowulf. Bagby is a marvel. He recites the poem in Anglo-Saxon, and he's a tremendous performer. If you have ever wondered what it was like to experience Old English poetry, the literature that Tolkien loved and studied all his life, as the original audiences would have experienced it, then come hear this performance. The show is completely free and open to the public. If you're anywhere in the Mid-Atlantic region and can possibly make it, I'd strongly encourage you to drive out to the college. If you need directions or would like more information, send me an email and I'll try to help. The second upcoming event, coming up on the very heels of the Bagby performance, is the 7th Annual Tolkien Movie Marathon. This year's marathon will be held on Saturday, November 6th. As in times past, we will watch all three extended editions of the films in sequence, stopping for a meal at every intermission. This time, however, my guests are in for a special treat. All the food will be catered by a private chef who is coming down from Massachusetts to cook for us for the day. My friend Heath Dill, author of the cooking blog Delicious. If you are in the area and can come by, please do. The movies start at 10 a.m., but you are welcome any time. Three more things, and then I will actually get to today's recording. First, I am planning to hold another Skype call-in session next week. The session will be on Wednesday, October 13th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. My Skype name is Tolkien Professor, with no spaces. If you have any questions you'd like to ask, or if there's a passage or an idea that you'd just like to discuss, give me a call. I'll be posting the session afterwards, if you can't make that time. I have also been considering starting a new feature this semester, the Silmarillion Reading Group. I know that a lot of you either haven't read the Silmarillion, or have had a hard time getting through it. I covered the Silmarillion in the Tolkien course that I recorded last spring, of course, but since I was trying to cover a lot of material in one semester, we ended up moving pretty quickly and not getting nearly as much time for discussion as I would really like. I was thinking, therefore, that it might be fun to have an online reading group on the Silmarillion. I could make up a reading schedule in which we would read fairly short selections every week and then have a designated weekly meeting time to get together online for discussion. I know that I'm not going to be able to set up a time that will work for everyone, of course, but I'd plan to record the session so that I could post it to the podcast feed after. 
I'm not yet certain about the online environment I'd used for this, so I'll post an update later when I iron out the details, but I just wanted to mention it now. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, feel free to let me know by email or through Facebook or Twitter. Okay, okay, one more announcement and then I'll move on. I've just officially been given permission to record and post another of my classes for the spring 2011 semester. This class will be called Fairy and Fantasy. We will begin by looking at the fairy tradition in medieval stories, then move briefly through some of the 19th century fairy tales, and finally end with the emergence from this tradition of the fantasy genre in the 20th century. I'll post more information about the class, including the reading list, on my website soon, but I thought I'd let you know that that's going to happen. All right, on to today's session already. This recording was made a little while back. I sat down to talk over a few questions I'd received by email with a few of my students and former students, Tessa Fox, Allison Fishbach, and Trevor Williams. We cover three topics, the nature and origin of the winged creatures that the Nazgul fly on, the power of the ring and why it turns people invisible, and the theology of Middle-earth. To start us off, Tessa read the first question. What exactly are the flying beasts that the Nazgul ride in the latter part of the Lord of the Rings? Are there any clues in the canon to explain their origins? Okay, well, uh, the, there's one passage in The Return of the King which uh, talks about this. Um, and as far as I know, this is the only discussion of this really anywhere. The fell beasts that they fly on do not seem to be part of... The tradition, I mean, there are some things that, you know, we meet in the Lord of the Rings which go back to the Silmarillion. We can see that, you know, they've been there. Oh, obviously the Balrog. But even things like Smaug the Dragon and the Hobbit, you know, of course we see the dragons back in the First Age. There does not seem to be a parallel to these flying beasts. In fact, one of the biggest problems for Morgoth in the First Age was his lack of an air force. I mean, it, he had no flying creatures until the flying dragons came around at the very, very end. This is why, for instance, Gondolin was able to be kept secret for such a long time, because you had the eagles who were guarding the peaks of the Crisigrin, the mountains around um, Gondolin, and he had nobody who could fly over since course, Balrogs don't have wings. So, <laughs> seriously, it was like it was like a big problem. I, in fact, there's one version of the story that Tolkien wrote way back when the Lord of the Eagles first had his home in the mountains of Thangorodrim, right above Angband, which was like an in-your-face move to Morgoth. Like, you can't fly up here and reach me, and none of your servants can fly up, so we're just going to sit right here and watch you because you can't do anything about it. And so, actually, the evidence seems to be that it really kind of ticked Morgoth off that he had no aerial power at all. So, not only is this relevant to the Balrog's flying question, but also, of course, to this. So that he didn't seem to have any beasts like this. None of his servants flew on winged beasts until the time of the winged dragons at the very end of the First Age. But anyway, here's the passage in The Return of the King. It's from near the beginning of the Battle of Pelennor Fields when the Lord of the Ringwraith shows up and kills Theoden. This is page 822 in my edition. The great shadow descended like a falling cloud, and behold, it was a winged creature, if bird, then greater than all other birds, and it was naked, and neither quill nor feather did it bear, and its vast pinions were as webs of hide between horned fingers, and it stank. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and it stank at the end. It's like my favorite part in this whole paragraph. A creature of an older world, maybe it was, whose kind, lingering in forgotten mountains, cold beneath the moon, outstayed their day, and in hideous eyrie, bred this last untimely brood apt to evil. And the Dark Lord took it, and nursed it with fell meats, until it grew beyond the measure of all other things that fly, and he gave it to his servant to be his steed. So that's 
that's it. That's the history that we have of it. So he describes it as possibly a last lingering remnant of an ancient breed, though again, we don't get any discussion of this breed earlier on. Morgoth doesn't seem to have used this. This seems to be one way, and there are a couple ways in which Sauron has kind of, you know, had some advances from the days of Morgoth. He's, you know, continued some of the old R&D projects. The clearest, I think, Silmarillion connection here is to the great wolf who guards the gates of Angband in the story of Baron and Luthien, um, Karkaroth. And there's a very similar description in the Silmarillion to describe Karkaroth and where he came from and how he came to be such a great and powerful wolf because Morgoth chose him from among the whelps of Draugluin, the father of wolves. Like, you know, he thought this one looked particularly, you know, spunky and apt to evil, probably, and, and took it and fed it flesh from his own hand. Not, his, like, the flesh of his own hand, but, like, from, with his own hand, fed him flesh, and filled him with his power until he grew and became the greatest and most powerful of all wolves. So that, there's definitely a parallel there. So, I mean, in both cases, it's the matter of the Dark Lord in question, you know, sort of adopting this creature and building it up and developing it. But that's really all we get. I mean, we don't know... He's deliberately, he, Tolkien is deliberately squirrely about the species at all. I mean, if it was a bird, then greater than all birds. But I don't know that it was a bird. It doesn't have feathers, so it doesn't look like a bird. Is it a mammal? Is it a reptile? I don't know. I mean, it, the way they did it in the films, I thought, seemed to fit the description pretty well. And it, they made it look kind of reptilian in the films, which made sense. But we don't know. I mean, we, we don't even really know what kind of creature it was. That's pretty much all we got on that. We know they're black. Yes. <laughs> There's certainly no reference to them being any other color. Right. And I'd have to think that that would stick out. Be like, look, one of those huge green flying things again. They're called dark and, yeah. I mean, they're seen a couple times. Of course, the first time they appear in the books is when Legolas shoots it over Anduin in the dark. And then, of course, they see them over Rohan a couple times. And, and even though this doesn't happen in sort of on stage, but when... Theoden comes back. They're told that, you know, one of those things stooped upon Edoras, so actually came down and, like, buzzed Edoras. But anyway, apart from that, flying around, and then when we see them later on, both flying over the marshes when Frodo and Sam and Gollum are going through, freaking out Gollum extremely, and then, of course, flying over the battle and then flying over the, the fields when the army is advancing and stuff. And then their final race to Mount Doom when Sauron realizes that the ring's about to go in the fire. And that's pretty much all we get from them. I think they're black. I would assume they're black. I mean, there's such a stable trend in Tolkien mm-hmm. that, like, evil things are black that it's hard for me to imagine they wouldn't be black. I mean, think about, like, Mirkwood, right? I mean, you've got the influence of Sauron and Mirkwood. What happens? All of the fauna turns black. I mean, squirrels, the <laughs> butterflies, everything <laughs> is black. I still I love Pippin's description, uh, his sort of summary of Bilbo's description of Mirkwood, when he says that that was all dark and black and the home of dark black things. <laughs> That's exactly, exactly it. But uh, yeah. when they had horses, the horses were black. So yeah. yeah, and there's even that comment that Amir makes, where like the orcs would come in and steal, like, and they always steal the black horses. <laughs> and, like they don't, you know, to the point where there aren't that many black horses left in the, you know, in, in in the marks, it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, he doesn't just make things black, he, he, he just, I mean, they have a color scheme, and he's going with it, I mean, Sauron <laughs> is not, you know, got the, 
black with a with the secondary color of red, and that's what we do <laughs> in Mordor. So yeah, I mean, it's a very strict dress code, and that's that's what he's <laughs> that's what he's doing. But I mean, it seems. Um, I mean, I, there there is, I mean, especially as I say, I think in, in in Mirkwood we can see it really clearly. You know, this is one of the ways that Tolkien represents outwardly this influence that that evil has and that Sauron has. And I think it's interesting, and I have to say, I thought that this was kind of interestingly done in the movies, too. Um, one of the things that's really striking when you watch the Battle of Pelennor Field on the films compared to the way it's described in the movies is the much larger role that the flying Nazgul play in the battle. You know, like when they come in and they're taking out the men on the walls and they take out the trebuchets on the walls and... And of course, we don't get descriptions of them doing anything like that. They're flying over the city, and they're crying out, and they're filling people with despair, and that's a big deal. I mean, they have a huge impact on the battle, but we don't see them physically acting. The only physical action described by any of the Nazgul is by the Lord of the Ringwraith, first when he rides through the gates, and second when he comes flying down and kills Theoden. So that was one of my favorite moments, I think, of adaptation by them. Not of representation. That is where they just take something in the book and they represent it visually on the screen. But where they take a a concept in the book which is not really directly translatable to a visual medium. I mean, how do you convey, because they're flying overhead, everyone's hearts were filled with gloom and despair. Like that, You can't convey that visually without, without narrative, right? So they manage to convey the significance of the Nazgul in the battle, that, okay, okay, like, the huge army of orcs, like, that's a problem, that would be a problem under any circumstances, but really, what is making this almost an unfair battle is the Nazgul, and I think that the way they showed them swooping in on the walls and taking out the defenses, and and of course they did have them shrieking and showing the men reacting to their shrieking and stuff, though again, sometimes in the films you get the impression that this is just like, this is a very unpleasant noise. Like, you know, of course, it's it's more than that. But I thought that it was fairly successful what they did. Like that, they were able to convey the Nazgul are a big deal. The Nazgul are the things that are really turning this battle. If the Nazgul were out of the picture, then they would have a much fairer shot. I mean, it's it's just making them chuck people off the walls. In some ways, is a little crude compared to the actual impact of the Nazgul. But still, you got to represent it in a visual medium. So, what can you do? My attention was drawn to the discussion of why the one great ring of power caused people to turn invisible. It seems bizarre. I appreciated your comments that the ring was primarily about dominion. Could it be that the ring allows the wearer to dominate the minds of the people around them into not seeing them? Then the reason it did not affect Tom Bombadil was that there was absolutely no desire for dominion in him. Just curious. Okay, so it seems that sort of the core... The core of this question is basically we have the two primary things that are associated with the ring, right? From the beginning, we have it turns you invisible. You know, from the, in the Hobbit, this is what we see, and of course, it's it's a it's a major feature all the way through. Um, but then, of course, you have the primary purpose of the ring, which is to dominate people and to be used as a as an instrument of dominion over other wills by the person who's wielding it. Um, so the question, I guess, really is how are those two things created you know i mean are, or rather how how are those two things connected is the one is i mean is invisibility a side effect of the dominion thing or is they you know that, that's that's anyway, that seems to me the heart of this question what do you guys think well symbolically at least to me it makes a certain amount of sense uh, invisibility as a power is 
a kind of invulnerability, or at least a measure of it, it makes you less prone to attack. Um, people can't see you. And I've been doing a thesis thing, and <laughs> re- somewhat related. Um, and in in the course of that, I've a lot of my thought has been around the concept of power, and um, really, I think power. The purpose of power is to make you in, invulnerable, at least in part, aside from the joy of bending other people to your will. The other right. part of it is that you are stronger than them and they can't touch you. So yes. they seem related, at least in that sense, to me. This makes me think one of the famous analogs of the Ring of Power, of the invisibility ring, is Plato's Ring of Gyges, or rather the story that Socrates tells of the Ring of Gyges. In Plato, it's just, he's talking about virtue, and in the discussion, you guys probably know this story, but but basically, just as a refresher, one of the guys talking to Socrates tells this theoretical story. It says, okay, well, it's actually based on a more ancient Greek story. But anyway, point is, this guy finds a ring which turns you invisible, and he discovers that it turns you invisible, and therefore realizes that with this ring... He could do lots of stuff and get away with it, and that there won't be consequences to his actions. And he goes and, you know, makes himself king and everything else. And the point that the person is trying to make is, if you give a person, even a good person, the power to, you know, do things without repercussions. You know, Tess, as you were describing, power in the sense of not having people have power over you, you know, being able to be invulnerable to other people in that way and be able to do what you want to do, then people will use it, you know, so basically this person's argument was everybody is sort of corruptible in this way. And of course there are very attractive parallels between the story of Gyges who finds this ring and Gollum's story, you know, how he finds the ring and realizes he can use it to learn other people's secrets and to steal stuff and he becomes hated and Although, of course, he doesn't get power. He becomes exiled, right? He, he like, does the opposite of, like, making himself king. But anyway, I, so, so I think in that sense, we can see that connection working. You know, that it does seem, as you say, at least sort of symbolically to represent, like, I am untouchable by you. I am totally outside your sphere. I am, I can see you. I can still interact with you. I can, but I am somewhere else out and above you. And I think that is an interesting kind of connection. Trevor, you'd want to say something? Well, I was thinking about part of the question where he seemed to be wondering if the invisibility was almost a physical thing, if the invisibility was happening to the wearer, or if they're invisible because it was influencing the minds of the people around them. Right, right. Uh, It's a really, it's an interesting thought. I, I tend to think it's more of a physical thing that it's the person because it's almost like kind of assume they're invisible even if no one else is around because of the way that they're experiencing and seeing the world or at least it's acting on them. Mm-hmm. But again, I guess that's one of those perception questions. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, the instance uh, with Tom Bombadil is a really interesting one because we have, you know, Tom Bombadil who is the only person who ever in the narrative puts on the ring who doesn't disappear. And the way that the hobbits seem to understand that, right, you know, the, I mean, I love the line where, you know, there was no sign of Tom Bombadil disappearing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, 
And the, and the question is whether is the ring just incapable of making him disappear, or uh, as the uh, as the questioner suggests, it's just, just like Tom Bombadil doesn't play that way, <laughs> right? And so he's not going to do the disappearing thing. One problem with that, of course, is that it doesn't seem like there's any kind of a voluntary thing with anybody else who wears it. It's not like everyone else is choosing to become invisible. Now, later on, the people who kind of inherit the ring, that is, you know, Sam when he takes the ring from Frodo, Frodo, of course, when he inherits the ring from from Bilbo, they all know what it does. And usually the only time, the only reason they put on the ring is because they want to disappear. So you could say, oh, see, their wills are involved. I mean, Sam, you know, the orcs are coming and he's like, I better put on the ring so that I can disappear. Um, But Bilbo, the very first time he puts it on, you know, like, half by accident, he has no idea what it does, and he only has to, like, figure out, gosh, I'm invisible, aren't I? You know, like, as he overhears Gollum's conversation to himself. So, um, it seems obvious there that the ring turns some people invisible, whether they choose to or not, whether they're wanting to do that or not. So, for that reason, I think it seems pretty clear that the action of the ring in turning invisible is not a totally voluntary thing. So it's not just a Tom Bombadil saying, I'm not going to turn on that function of the ring, or I'm not going to take advantage of that function of the ring. But did he resist it? I mean, the way that Gandalf talks about it, that is the Tom Bombadil thing in the Council of Elrond, one of the elves, and I always confuse Galdor and Aristor, I can never remember who said which in the Council, but anyway, one of them says that it seems like Tom Bombadil has a power even over the ring. And Gandalf says, I wouldn't say that, say rather that the ring has no power over Again, brings me back to that phrasing, there was no sign of Tom Bombadil disappearing. Which makes it sound like, basically, when that happens, when a person disappears, the ring is the actor, and the person is the subject, is the patient of the action. So the difference with Tom Bombadil is that he is master. So he's not subject to what the ring does to people. And so therefore it doesn't become invisible. But again, that itself is almost like the opposite of what the ring the main power of the ring, which is dominion, right? To, to give you dominion over other people. Um, and of course, the primary concern, the primary discussion of the ring throughout the books is the power that the ring is having over Frodo and has over, you know, it, it corrupts you and it will dominate you. And of course, the worst thing that you can do is to try to use the ring to dominate other people because then you will be the more swiftly dominated because of it. You know, as Gandalf says, that's why Bilbo escaped so comparatively unscathed from his possession of the ring, because he started his possession of the ring with mercy, and he kept it, you know, sort of with good intention and without malice the whole time. He never tried to dominate or to get advantage from it. The only time he used it to disappear was to, like, disappear when the Sackville Bagginses were coming to visit, right? So, I mean, it's not like he ever used it like Gyges did to gain his, you know, or like Smeagol did, to you know, to gain power and to gain secrets or wealth or anything like that. It seems that that connection between dominating others and being dominated yourself, that's always, I think, like at the core of Tolkien's whole picture of evil. Yeah, and it's not for us yeah, to do. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Just the idea that um, in striving for power over other people, that power itself consumes you, like the desire for power, rather, consumes you, and you become reduced, and you become subject to your own sort of craving in a way, like the ring race do, they eventually become so diminished that they're basically living shadows. Yeah, yeah. And maybe, I don't know, that's another thing that strikes me about Tom Bombadil is um, he seems like such a solid person. <laughs> like he's a, mm-hmm. like almost spiritually speaking, you know, he's yeah. 
he is a whole person, and um, yeah. uh, he lives almost a, a simple life. You know, he has his little domain, and he's content with that. He's content with himself. He's secure enough in who he is. I mean, right, right. He's exactly. always thinking about who he is. So <laughs> he would be. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's secure enough in who he is that he doesn't need um, to dominate other people to make himself feel greater. Mm-hmm. He already knows. <laughs> right, exactly. He knows exactly how great he is. I mean, he's got yellow boots and a blue jacket. <laughs> exactly. What could be better? Exactly. So, um, it seems to me that he doesn't have that same kind of desire that other people might. And so his attitude toward the world and toward himself is such that the ring wouldn't corrupt him. Yeah. It's the one thing he has dominion. He doesn't want any more dominion. As you say, he's content. So yeah, he doesn't need it. He doesn't want it. And therefore he's not corrupted by it. And when I say not corrupted by it there, I mean not only by the ring, but as you say, by power in general. I mean, as you point out, evil and the desire to dominate others is always corrupting, like corrupting in the sense of like iron rusting, right? I mean, to, to, it, it, it corrodes and weakens and eventually vanishes. We see this happening to Morgoth and Sauron as well. Sometimes people will seem to think about the ring as if it were just some kind of trap that Sauron made. You know, if you take my ring or if you wield my ring, then you will come under my dominion and, you know, as if that, that was the purpose of the ring. The purpose of the ring was Sauron put a lot of his own will to dominate into it, out of his own power in it. So you get dominated and you become corrupt, not because just you're becoming subject to Sauron, but because you're becoming like Sauron. <laughs> like, that's what happened to him. It is the, the corrosiveness of his own will that affects you as well. So yes, you would become, as Gandalf says to Frodo, a shadow under his great shadow. But that's just because he's already a great shadow himself. You know, and Morgoth, the same thing happens with Morgoth. I mean, he becomes a shadow of his former self as well, and in the end is helpless and cowardly because he can't oppose the Valar, he, you know, because he's weakened himself through his own desire to dominate others. So yeah, I think that that's something which is really an intrinsic element, not just of the ring, but of power of that kind of power, power of dominion, and of evil in general. I mean, that's just sort of part of that picture. Coming back to invisibility, though, Another angle that I think to take on is thinking of the discussion that Gandalf has with Frodo when Frodo wakes up in Rivendell right after the Ford of Bruinen, and Gandalf is talking to him about what had happened to him, that is, with the wound from the knife and how he was already starting to fade, and he's describing this is what happens to mortals who have a great ring also. You know, in chapter two he's talking about this, that they fade and they become wraiths, that conversation also is where he talks about the other side, right? There's like the spirit world and the physical world, and that there are some who dwell simultaneously in both sides, like Glorfindel, and Frodo was being drawn from one to the other, and that seems to be his explanation later on. When you were at The Hobbit, there was no explanation. I mean, as I've said before, and I'll say many times again, in The Hobbit, the ring is just Bilbo's convenient invisibility ring, and you know, he had no sense of any massive cosmic consequences to the ring when he was first writing that book. But anyway, as he went back and, and, you know, rethought it and worked The Hobbit into the later ideas, the ring draws the wearer into the wraith world. That's why you become invisible. And that's why also when he's wearing the ring, he can see the ring wraiths, you know, and he sees the pale king and everything, you know, he can actually see their faces and stuff because he is in the wraith world with them at that time. So 
again, this is an indication of being dominated by it. Like, Tom Bombadil, he's not getting sucked into the Wraith world. I mean, we see his relationship with Wraiths. I mean, look at the Barrel White, right? I mean, he's, he, as you say, he's too solid. He can't just be sucked into the Wraith world. And also, he himself is a spirit as well. I mean, he, even his own solidity is not, in one sense, part of his ultimate nature. I mean, he is clearly within the framework of the larger mythology that Tolkien made, must be some kind of Ainu, I mean, some kind of spirit who came into the world. And all of the spirits that came into the world, we're told, like their physical representation is sort of their own choice. You know, you could say, in some sense, it's not just that he's always singing about his own clothes, but rather his own clothes are the manifestation of his singing. Because right? <laughs> he chooses, like not only does he choose like what clothes to put on in the morning, like he chooses what form to have at all, right? This is how I want to visually represent myself here. And he's comfortable with it. He's delighted by it, apparently. Right? But anyway, it really is sort of a question for me. I mean, Sauron, obviously, by the way, doesn't become invisible when he wears the robe. In the Battle of Dagorlad, when he was overcome in the Last Alliance, you know, and Isildur is, like, holding him down and cutting the ring off his hand. He, there's, I mean, no evidence he was invisible at that time, you know. <laughs> Isildur is fighting, you know, with an invisible foe like Gollum and Frodo at the Cracks of Doom, and, you know, he cuts off the ring, and then Sauron appears. Ah, I mean, that, that, that does not seem to be how it happened. Sauron doesn't disappear. Why would he? Um, he also, you know, so preeminently, as, as a Maiar, exists simultaneously in the Wraith world and the physical world. Although he is, he has a different relationship with the physical world than somebody like Tom Bombadil would have, or or than somebody like one of the Valar, because he is restricted to it. In the post Numenor world, he can't change his form. He can't choose. He's locked into that that form, like just like Morgoth got locked into his form. Self dominion over themselves. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So thinking about the invisibility from that angle, I mean, I think that there are also ways in which we can see. To some extent, like if you become invisible when you put on the ring, and like I said, it shows you're, you're not really in charge. Like you're being dominated. I think it would be an interesting question, though, of course, an utterly theoretical question. Like, had Galadriel taken the ring and put it on and, you know, become the dark lady who ruled over the world, would she have become invisible? She, of course, is an elf, not a Maya, but she, like Gorfindel, had been to Valinor, though unlike Orphindel, she hadn't died and come back, so I don't, you know. Anyway, I don't know. I mean, would she turn invisible? No idea. I'm going to guess no, but it's just a guess. I would think that she would be in control, at least as much in control as anybody who chooses that path is in control. So uh, just to be clear, um, why, why is it that Sauron wouldn't disappear? Is it just that he made it, is it or is it just a measure of his power and evil that in a sense, even though he's being consumed by his power, he's just so evil and he loves the power so very it. much <laughs> that uh, his designs and the rings are sort of one? Or, uh... Yeah, well, I mean, his designs and the rings are one in as much <laughs> as the ring is part of him. And it's hard to explain that relationship. Like, sometimes people will think about the ring like it's a weapon that can be wielded. You know, so in The Lord of the Rings, when people are saying, like, oh, if Sauron were to get the ring, he would be unstoppable... And sometimes people will read that as if it were something like, you know, if the nation you're at war with develops an atomic bomb, then they will be unstoppable. Like, you must stop them from getting this weapon. It's, it's not like that. It's not like he would get this extra power or this extra weapon that he didn't have before. It's him. I mean, like, he made it. And it's not just like this was his own project. Like, he put his own power in it. 
the reason he would be unstoppable is that he would be basically restored to his full power. Without it, he's without. I mean, they're fighting, like, the whole time, they're fighting, like, mini Sauron over there because a big percentage of his power was put into the ring, so when he doesn't have the ring, he's only operating, I don't know what percentage, 50% strength, 40% strength, I don't know, but a comparatively small amount of his own personal power. He would be restored to full power and would be pretty much unstoppable. Now, he wasn't unstoppable before. He was at 100% power when Isildur held him down and cut the ring off his hand. But that was because he was fighting against people who were themselves really, really powerful. I mean... I mean, it was like the all-star team. I mean, the last alliance was like the all-star team for the good guys. I mean, you had most of the most powerful people in all of Middle-earth right there on the hill fighting against Sauron alone. I mean, so it was, what, five? Five on one. Yogalad, Elrond, Círdan, Isildur, and Elendil against Sauron. So they had him five on one. They overcame him barely. The two most powerful of the good guys were killed in that battle. Gilgalad and Elendil, but they won. The problem is just that if he's at 100% strength and you gather, you know, you try to make, like, you know, the new All-Star team, it would not be as powerful as the first All-Star team, and so they wouldn't be able to overcome him. Boromir talks about the ring like a weapon. Valor needs first strength and then a weapon, he says, at the Council of Elrond. But that's because Boromir's not understanding, you know, and that's how he thinks of it. He's wrong <laughs> to think of it that way. Now, it does seem to be true that a very powerful person who had the ring and used it could basically use Sauron's power against him. Like Galadriel says that she could, and I see no reason to disbelieve her when she says that. But it's not a matter of kind of bringing in an outside weapon. For Sauron, it's not a matter of bringing in an outside weapon. I would almost be more curious whether Aragorn would become invisible. I mean, Mm -hmm. Isildur did. Yes. But, and again, I guess it has to do with the invisibility and Perhaps it has something to do with stature, how much of that invulnerability you get. You know, if you're a hobbit or a weak man, yeah, that's sort of, you get the base level of invulnerability, like no one can see you. If you're Sauron or someone very powerful, you get a much higher level, you know, maybe arrows don't do just as much as that. Right. But I wonder, I mean, Sauron seemed to be nervous about Aragorn getting the ring. Yes. And him being able to use it against him, and presumably not just because he wouldn't be able to see it. Right, right. So, yes. <laughs> how will I defeat Gondor if Aragorn is invisible? <laughs> so, yes. So I wonder, would he become invisible? That's a great question. I mean, based on the example of Isildur, you'd have to say yes, because Aragorn, awesome as he is, is not more powerful than Isildur was. All the way through, people are like, yeah, Aragorn is a throwback to the Numenorean days. In other words, like Isildur. Although, in some ways, he is more powerful because he's able to resist the ring. Yes, that's true. He never held it, though, did he? Mm. No, I suppose not. He didn't. He, he resisted didn't. taking it up, which is Which good. is a big part that, of it. Yeah. That's a good point. Too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you could say, oh, right, he didn't have it in his hand. He had it in his power for quite a Definitely. long time. An interesting thing about Isildur, though, although he had said he was going to keep it, at least in the parchment that Gandalf finds in Minas Tirith. On the scroll that he finds, Isildur says he's going to take, it's going to be an heirloom of the North Kingdom. But it's still not clear that Isildur claims it in the sense in which Frodo claimed at the edge of the cracks of doom. Isildur is a victim of the ring, in one sense, but he doesn't really go over the edge, it seems. That is, he's not 
he, in retrospect, should have destroyed it at the time. But he doesn't seem to be like, and now like I shall establish my kingdom of evil. And <laughs> Tolkien really emphasizes this in the story that he wrote that's in Unfinished Tales called The Disaster of the Gladden Fields. He tells the story of the final battle of Isildur and the ambush and his being shot with arrows and losing the ring. And in that version of the story, which is much fuller than any version of it that we get told about in The Lord of the Rings, he makes it much less of a failure in that. Isildur says that he plans to take the ring back to Elrond and give it to him. That he's going to give it up to Elrond and give it into the keeping of the Elven wives. Of course, to which one is tempted to say, maybe. <laughs> well, you know, the thing that Gandalf says about Bilbo when he says, at most, the wielder of a ring might play with the idea of giving it up, but they rarely ever do it. So, you know, Push had not yet come to shove with the handing of the ring over to Elrond. So, you know, we could, there's still some, some room for slippage there. But anyway, the point is that Tolkien depicts, in that later story, depicts that as basically his intentions, at least, were good still. And so therefore, when he puts on the ring, he is still being a patient, not an actor. Right? He is not laying claim to it. This is my ring, whose power I am going to wield and claim unto myself. So the question would be then, if Aragorn did that, would the situation be different for him? Yeah, or if Isildur did that, it become visible. Right. <laughs> right. Of course, another factor is the people that he was fighting against, Sauron, I mean, in the Battle of the Last Alliance, even if he were invisible in the way that the ring makes you invisible, might the people who whom he was fighting with be able to see him anyway? Now, actually, none of the people had been to Valinor. Gilgalad, well, Gilgalad. Gilgalad is the son of Fingon, and it's unclear whether he was born in Middle-earth or whether he... Because he's first named in the Silmarillion after the elves are back in Middle-earth. And I can't remember any references to whether or not Gilgalad was born in Valinor and came over with the Noldor, or whether he was born in Middle-earth. I'm not sure about that one. But Elrond, of course, was born in Middle-earth and has never been to Valinor, and cured in the shipwright very famously, though he is a very ancient and very powerful elf. I mean, as far as we can see, he's one of the original elves, like who woke up by the Lake of Gwythian <laughs> way back when. Um, nevertheless... He's never been to Valinor. I mean, that's like the whole point of who he is, is like the dude who's been on the coast ever since they got there and he never went over. So so that's interesting, actually. None of them are in the Glorfindel or Galadriel camp of the people who are fighting against him. The whole Wraith world is a little confusing still. It is. <laughs> it is. And I think it's one of the things... There were a lot of things that Tolkien worked out and ironed out as he went on, and... I think the metaphysics of the Wraith world are kind of tricky. He's very consistently clear about like body-spirit duality. I mean, Allison, I'm thinking about the you know with the, with the elves, right, and their spirits and their bodies and the kind of the different relationship between elves' bodies and spirits than humans have, for instance. And of course, the Valar. You know, he talks about the Valar and the Maiar and them, you know, existing as spirits, but embodying themselves for the sake of interacting with the world. And then you've got the wizards who are in a different situation, whose connection with their physical bodies is different from the rest of the mind. They're not just like, you know, I have chosen to embody myself, you know, and give myself a blue jacket and yellow boots, but rather, like, they are incarnate. Like, they are actually, like, they can suffer and die. And, 
like be killed and their their spirits separated from that body that they were put in. They're put in that those bodies in ways which are more like the children of Iluvatar. So like that duality between body and spirit is very consistent all the way through. But this idea of this spirit world and that it does not correlate as clearly and is is a lot. I I, I find it kind of misty myself. Yeah, I mean. I'm trying to think of some of the passages where they talk about it, and it, it usually talks about it. It's kind of a dark place. And I wonder if... I think one of the thoughts I had was, you know, if Iluvatar is making the world, that spirit world isn't a mockery of the world that Iluvatar has created. Though it's clear that there are good things that are native there, too. Glorfindel is the clearest example. I mean... Almost all of this Wraith World discussion comes from that moment in Chapter 1 of Book 2 in The Fellowship of the Ring, the conversation that Gandalf has with Frodo. I mean, I'm trying to think of other places where the other side and the spirit world are kind of talked about in this way. And other than the moment on Weathertop when he you know, can see them as they are. And also, to some extent, Sam's experience when he's wearing the ring in Mordor also kind of... But, but even though like, physical things become kind of misty to him. The point is we have very few instances which really kind of discuss and describe this, but in that, the clearest discussion that we get of the relationship between good and the spirit world is through Glorfindel. And the implications of Gandalf's statement about Glorfindel there is that, you know, he says, you saw him. The time he uses the phrase, the other side, that I keep quoting, is about Glorfindel. He says, you saw him for a moment, as he is on the other side, one of the mighty of the firstborn. And he says that those who were in Valinor exist at once in both worlds. Which implies, therefore, that Valinor itself is very much part of, if that's even the right way to say it, the the spirit world, too. Which is why I don't think we can say that it's just an evil thing. But you're certainly right that the majority of sort of wraith and spirit things that we see are bad. And there is clearly a connection between, I mean, even just, you know, back to the original topic of discussion, this connection between domination and the Wraith world. You know, the fact that Sauron's total domination of people like the original Ringwraiths, right, manifests itself as drawing them permanently into the Wraith world and giving them this sort of non-physical, tenuous, undead existence shows this kind of, I don't know, this kind of resonance way. This is the relationship that evil has to that world. But of course it's equally clear that when good wraiths, if they could be called that, when good spirits confront wraiths, evil spirits, in that world, there's no competition. It's like the relationship between light and darkness, right? And we can see this both with Gorfindel and the Ringwraith, and also Tom Bombadil and the Barrow White. I think something interesting, we talk about um, the the wraith world, most of the negative ones are actually men. Like, mm-hmm. The bear waits for men, and the ring race for men, and their spirits aren't supposed to be there. Yeah. So I think that's what makes it negative. They're in the wrong spot. So when you have a, an elf come and just combat that, I mean, there's no, there's yeah. no chance. Yeah, and there, I mean, the ring wraiths and the barrow whites are perversions. You know, as you say, the, the men, they're not supposed to be there. And people like Gollum has been damaged by being connected with that. He's been perverted. He's not faded, as Gandalf says. He's not become a wraith, but still he's been warped by his contact with that in ways that are 
not how it should be. Remember also the seven rings of the dwarven rings. Sauron was disappointed by them when he put out the recall notice on the seven rings because they didn't work. He wanted to dominate the dwarves in the same way, drag the dwarves into the wraith world, but you can't do that to dwarves. Gotta think Aule was like somewhat <laughs> smug about that, actually. <laughs> like, yeah, take that. Not my craftsmanship, thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, so I agree. I mean, I think that that's a really important thing to remember. Even calling it the Wraith World, as we've been doing, I think is unfair. It's clearly not the Wraith World. Wraiths are just what happen when someone who is not supposed to be in that spiritual realm is kind of dragged in and imprisoned, ultimately, in that world. And so in that sense, again, coming back to the invisibility, the invisibility from the beginning can be seen as a kind of corruption. Like, you are being brought into contact with this world. You are being dragged, whether you're doing it on purpose, whether you know it's happening to you, whether you recognize you are being dragged into that world, and it shouldn't be. And even if your intentions are good and you, you know, you're not trying to dominate others, I mean, even if you have a Bilbo-like relationship with the ring, still it affects you, and it corrupts you spiritually, physically. You know, I think of Bilbo's, you know, thin and stretched, you know, thing that he, he can feel it's not good for you. And I think, Allison, that you're right about that. With with mortals especially, it seems to have that reaction. But would Aragorn have eventually been able to make himself visible? I don't know. You've got to think. Because it is true that Sauron is afraid of him. And it seems, by all indications, that if Aragorn took the ring and claimed it, he probably could defeat Sauron. The question is, what would he look like? <laughs> You'd have to. Th- I mean, I would have to think that he would end up becoming like the Wraith King, and he would have to become a Wraith because he's, yeah, he's exactly. human. Yeah, I get the feeling he'd be a Wraith. He could. He might defeat Sauron, but I don't think he would be visible. Right. Yeah, he would become the Wraith King. You'd have to think that. Galadriel probably not in the same way, mm-hmm. but Aragorn, yeah. You get some some clothes that you can see <laughs> in the real world, right? What, like the Ring Wraiths do with their clothes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, one of the moments where Aragorn's power, if he had had the ring, is most explicitly described is by Legolas when he's telling Merry and Pippin the story of the Paths of the Dead. And when he is commanding the spirits of the dead and they're all afraid. I mean, there, there is a leader of the dead, but basically Aragorn is riding in front of the dead. It's, you know, when, when all the people are you know, hiding themselves in their houses and saying, the king of the dead, the king of the dead is upon us. Aragorn is basically the king of the dead. He is commanding them. He is ruling them. And it's then, when in describing Aragorn's power and authority there, that Legolas says, it was then that it occurred to me, what a terrible lord of power Aragorn could be if he were to take up the ring. It's sort of an interesting connection that basically he would be like the, you know, he would be like that. He would be like a wraith commanding other wraiths. Yeah, that was a long... Discussion, but that's okay. That was the best version of the question, but there seem to be a lot of people who want to sort of talk or think more about the ring and what it does, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the power of the ring. I wonder, though, would it be wrong to think of the theology of Middle-earth to be panentheistic? Eru Luvatar seems to be a deistic god existing outside and beyond Ea and very rarely interfering after the great music in its course. Yet through the music and through the Einor, his agents, it could be said that Eru pervades Ea. Okay, so basically we have questions about the theology, ultimately, of Middle-earth, of Tolkien's work. There are three terms that I think we need to define before we get into answering the question. 
One is deism. Feel free to add to my definitions. I'm going to give very rough and dirty definitions of these theological concepts. Deism is basically the idea that there is one God who creates things, but then he doesn't interfere with his creation afterwards. So his connection with the world, you know, it just does its own thing and he doesn't bother with it from then on out. The second term is panentheistic, which is different from pantheistic. There's an E-N in the middle of it. Both of these terms are Greek terms. Pantheism comes from pantheos, pan meaning all and theos meaning God. So pantheism is the theology that says God is everything, and that everything is God. So that basically uh, all of the world and everything is a part of God, that everything is just sort of a manifestation of. Panentheism is a little bit different, and the primary difference, as I understand it, though my understanding of this is not terrifically profound, is that basically God is sort of more so than in pantheism, uh, separate from the world, but that the power and energy of God sort of suffuses the world, so that the whole world... You know, God is in the world. The en that's added to the name means in in Greek. So panentheism means literally all in God. That the whole world is in God. It's not identical with God exactly, but it's all in God, and God is in the whole world. The fourth term, I suppose, that should be introduced, what monotheism means, especially when you're talking about Judeo-Christian monotheism, the concept there is that God is a transcendent God, that God is separate from the world. The world is a creation of him. It's not a part of him. It's not a manifestation of him. It is a separate thing that God made and that God transcends the world. He is above and beyond the world and outside it. He interacts with it, created it, sustains it, but it is not him and he is not it. Okay, so this listener has first said that Iluvatar seems like a deistic God. What do we think? He's still around. He can mm. sort of just walk away. Yeah, I mean, I think Iluvatar sort of may be open to the accusation of deism mm-hmm. based on the fact that he's mentioned comparatively infrequently. When you, for instance, read the Silmarillion and you read the Old Testament, and it's clear God's interaction with the world in the Old Testament, for instance, it's quite frequent in terms of him speaking to people and him performing you know, miracles, and he's actively involved at many places. And we don't see Iluvatar nearly as active. And this is something that I think kind of gets in a lot of people's way when they're thinking about Tolkien's world and thinking about the religious implications of it. You know, many people will say, well, gosh, you know, it seems kind of Christian, Except God's not there. You know, there's like, is there a God? Where is God? I don't know what's going on. I think that's totally understandable. But he's clearly not deistic, even though it might seem like he's not present. And I think at first, he clearly is there. The biggest, most spectacular example, of course, is the drowning of Numenor. At the end of the Akalabath in the Silmarillion, when the Numenorean fleet lands in Valinor and challenges the Valar, it's a really interesting moment because... The Valar's reaction to that is not, I think, what we might possibly expect. The Valar have been defied by the Numenorians. They don't fight them, right? They don't say, like, okay, you know, bring it, Arfares, on, let's do this, right? That is not the Valar. They step back. Manway lays down his stewardship of the world. He just sends this into Iluvatar's court. And he's like, you know, God, I'm just going to let you take care of this. I'm not doing anything. And Iluvatar acts. So the the drowning of Numenor and the far more significant, literally global consequences, I mean the making of the world round at that point and the separation of Valinor permanently 
that's not only is it Iluvatar who does that, it's only Iluvatar who could have done that. The Valar could have managed the sinking of the island of Numenor. They could have handled that. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't handle the hiding of Valinor in the way that it was. I mean, especially when you think about the fact that they tried that. Like, they are, they had a version of that in place. I mean, they had Valinor defended so that it was really, really hard to get there. That's why Eärendil was the only one who did make it back. If you've read the Silmarillion, you may remember that Turgon of Gondolin is trying to send people back. You know, he's been sending messengers back to try to sail across the sea and make this appeal to the Valar for a long time. But they all wreck. None of them None of them make it because there are these enchanted islands of shadow that you can't navigate through. But still, that attempt to separate Valinor from the world is like nothing compared to... He takes it out of the world entirely. He remakes the world in that moment. That alone, even if Illuminar never did anything else but the drowning of Numenor and the reforming of the world, that is enough to show that he is not a deistic god. Throughout the Lord of the Rings, though, we get lots of indications that Iluvatar is directly involved. You know, when Gandalf is saying his still kind of cryptic things to Frodo at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, you know, when he's saying things like, I can say it no plainer than to say that Bilbo was meant to find the ring, and not by its maker. I always find that statement funny. Mm-hmm. You know, Gandalf is incapable of making it clearer than that. Come on, I think you could make it clearer than that, Gandalf. But anyway, <laughs> uh, clearly, I mean, this is Iluvatar's plan. And... So there are lots of times when I think we can see him being active, but nevertheless, I do think that it is important that Tolkien doesn't blow a trumpet when this happens. It is very rare to get the kinds of interaction between people and Iluvatar that we see, for instance, in the Old Testament, whether it's something as spectacular as, you know, the giving of the Ten Commandments and the plagues of Egypt, or as sort of comparatively unspectacular as, say, the call of Samuel. You know, when Samuel, the prophet, as a child, hears the voice of God calling his name in the night and keeps waking up and going into the other room and saying, you know, who called me? And then eventually the priest that he's with says, oh, actually, I think it's God just to say, here I am. Uh, What do you want? You know, next time he says that. Compared to the plagues of Egypt, that's a small thing. But again, it's the kind of thing that you almost never see happening in the Lord of the Rings. Nobody gets, like, I've received a message from Iluvatar directly that we know of, or at least that's called that. So Tolkien is much more indirect about those kinds of things. But, but clearly, he's acting. So I think we can say pretty definitively that Tolkien's world is not a deistic world. And I, I think just the fact that there's a plan and perhaps a sort of final reunion at the end sort of... That's not necessarily what what a deist yeah. god is all about. I don't know if deist god or you know deists think that there is a plan that you know God sets in motion and then goes away. But it seems like there's there's a little bit more investment. Yeah, it seems like Iluvatar <laughs> has some wrapping up to do when yeah. things are over. Yeah, and there are indications in a couple places, especially in uh, especially in the Silmarillion, about you know there's going to be you know, the Middle-earth apocalypse, there's going to be you know, a resurrection, there's, you know, there's going to be a, a final battle. Our Farazan and the Numenorians are hanging out, they've been, they're kept alive down in the pit waiting for the last battle, where presumably they're going to fight with the bad guys. I mean, on the side of the bad guys. But anyway, that's, so yeah, I agree, I mean, that sense of the sort of ultimate eschatology of Middle-earth, to use one of my favorite big words, uh, eschatology meaning the study of last things, 
that also is not really in keeping, I think, with traditional ideas of deism. But now on the question of pantheism and panentheism, pantheism, I think, is certainly not like Middle Earth. The listener who wrote this email wasn't suggesting that. Panentheism, I can see where that comes from, especially with the idea of the secret fire, right? You've got Iluvatar makes the world, and then you've got the secret fire, which is with Iluvatar, you know, that he places at the center of the world. So you can say, oh, he's investing his energy in the world, and the Ainur are the offspring of his thoughts, so they are like emanations of Iluvatar's own mind, and they then invest the world, and fill it with their energies, which are indirectly his energies, you know, with his thought of the skies and the stars and the earth and the seas. So I can see where that idea comes from. In the end, I don't think that that's the case. And I think that the important thing is the term that I was introducing back when I was talking about monotheism. Iluvatar is clearly a monotheistic god, not just because Tolkien says that he is, which he does say explicitly, in his letters, but he's demonstrably monotheistic in the sense that Iluvatar is a transcendent god. The music of the Ainur is the plan of creation, but it's not the act of creation. The act of creation is a very Genesis 1 act of creation, where God speaks into the void, says, Ea, be, and the world is. It is a creation, ex nihilo, it is a creation from nothing, God is outside the world. The Ainur are outside the world, and they choose to enter it and become bound to it when they enter it. He clearly transcends the world, exists separate from it, is outside of it. It's not a manifestation of him. It's not part of him. It's not connected with him. It's something that he caused to be in the same way that, I guess it in a very similar way, the Judeo-Christian God caused the world to be. I mean, almost the same expression, let there be, is what God says, you know, again and again in Genesis chapter 1, and it's, like it's the same phrase that Iluvatar uses. And that's one thing that Genesis 1 is so clear about. God is a transcendent God. I mean, it's like one of the plain messages of Genesis chapter 1 is establishing the relationship between God and the creation. And I think that Tolkien does that also pretty clearly. I think the music of the Ainur can sometimes confuse it a little bit for people, because that sort of sounds like, well, the music is his own thought, and then the Ainur, who are expressing parts of his own mind, play the music, and then the... but the music isn't the creation. That is the plan, and he makes them the instruments of his plan, though even to think of the Ainur just as emanations of him is wrong, because they clearly have free will. Melkor demonstrates that they have free will. He chooses to use his free will to rebel. But even the other Ainur, plainly, make their own choices and do their own thing, the Aule, right? So even with the relationship between Iluvatar and the Ainur, it's pretty clear that they are not just emanations of him. I'm having some thoughts sort of about the nature of creation, especially creation of life, where the creations end up being more than just the creator in a different form, especially in terms of the Ainur. When we give birth to new life, you know, they may have some of your genetic material and they may be alive, but they're inevitably their own people. And in, in the case of Iluvatar, he's not even giving them his genes. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> though of course you have the metaphor of the children of Iluvatar. And even there, when the Ainur first sort of learn about the fact that the children are going to happen, they love them because they are other than themselves. They're connected to Iluvatar because, of course, everything comes from Iluvatar, right? Everything is in some sense a reflection of him. Genesis chapter 1 again, right? That, you know, when God goes to create human beings near the end of Genesis chapter 1, 
You know, he says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So he does. You know, and so, again, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 picks up on this as well, where you have, on the one hand, first God forms Adam out of the dust of the ground. So he forms the physical form of Adam out of the dust and then breathes the breath of life into his nostrils so that the breath that Adam breathes is the breath of life from God. And so you have established there both the intimacy of the connection between Adam and God, but also the distance. I mean, he made him out of dirt. Mm-hmm. So, and I, and I think we can see the same thing with the children of Iluvatar as well. They are the children of Iluvatar. They come from him. And by interacting with them, the Ainur are excited because they will see more of the wonder of Iluvatar and his creation in them than they had known of before. But they're also other. Tolkien says that the Ainur believe that the children are especially men, are often a grief to Iluvatar. <laughs> He's always screwing up and doing things that he doesn't want them to do. So again, they're clearly separate. They're not just sort of manifestations of him. I mean, ultimately, you can't have individual free will, nor can you have absolute moral standards, certainly in a pantheistic world. In a pantheistic world, you can't really have absolute good and absolute evil because all is a part of God. So therefore, pantheism is necessarily relativistic. I think we can all agree that Tolkien's world is not a morally relativistic world. That, that seems tolerably clear, I think, in his discussion of good and evil. And again, that comes from the idea, again, of a transcendent God, who, by his positive being, establishes that standard. And that standard is therefore then in place for all of his creations and coded into the way that he creates the world. This is why evil is always destructive, because it's not how creatures were designed to be. They were designed to be like a Luvatar, that is, they were designed to be good. And so when they go bad, they break down. As Morgoth breaks down, as Sauron breaks down, as the ring wraiths break down, as everybody breaks down, because that's just not how the system was designed to function. I almost said not how the machine was designed to run, but then I realized at the last second how much Tolkien would object to that <laughs> metaphor. So, <laughs> so I decided not to use that. All right. Don't forget, the next Skype call-in session will be on Wednesday, October 13th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I hope to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.